Before I start in on the message, um, I want to share with you. I got a card in the mail, and <clears throat> I don't think any of you all know this, or very many of you. Um, about a month ago, we benevolently, what is it? Benevolently. We gave some money to some guy, this guy, that I work with. Um, he had to have all of his teeth pulled. He's 44 years old. His mouth got infected. And uh, it was going to cost a few thousand dollars to get all this done. He didn't have insurance to help pay for it. I presented that need to the, uh, the deacons. And we didn't pay for it all, but we, we gave him some money to help cover that. And he sent us a thank you note, and I just wanted to read that to you. It says, you've touched my heart, and I cannot thank you enough. That's the typed part. And he wrote, thank you so much for helping me. I appreciate it. Along, I don't know what that means. And I'm so very thankful. Keep our family in your prayers, and thank you from the Plum family. So <clears throat> I just want to say thank you because <laughs> November 10th, I had a tooth pulled at 41. And it, it bothered me. I mean, it just, I don't know, there was a permanence to it. My tooth is gone. And it wasn't just a week or two later, this guy comes up, he said, I have to have all my teeth pulled. Man, it just crushed me. It just made me so sad. And then I knew that financially it was going to be a hardship, so I presented that need. And I actually presented it to another church, too, that my parents go to, and they gave some money as well. We didn't get it all paid for, but we put a big dent in it. So uh, thank you all for giving and... Uh, the Plum family would like to thank you for uh, assisting in that too. So, And if you ever have any questions, benevolence-wise, what we do, we are, we are working on a policy, if you want to call it that, um, of how we handle benevolence. We've always just basically said, here's a need, can we help meet it? Um, so we can't help everybody, but we can help some people, and we have. So thank you for being faithful to give. That's part of what your money's doing when you give it here. So trust these two guys as deacons to handle that and make decisions. So I uh, just wanted to share that with you. Now, about today, let me ask you a question. Do you think you would live differently if you knew when you were going to die and how you were going to die? Would it change the way that you lived? Anybody ever seen the movie Big Fish? Near the beginning of the movie, this guy gets a an oracle, a vision of how he will die. And I won't give away too much of the movie to explain how that happens. But he knew from early childhood how he was going to die. So he would get in positions where he was scared or frightened, and he would say, this is not how I die. And things would work out, and he'd go on, and three or four times at least in the movie, he says, this is not how I die. So he doesn't worry about it. He just goes on, he presses on. If you knew that you were going to die at age 84 on April the 12th by a heart attack, how would that affect you at age 48 in a dangerous situation? Are you tracking with me? You'd be like, oh, this isn't how I die. I don't have to, you know, I might get hurt or something, but I'm not going to die here. Would that change how you live? Would that change how you attacked life? Would you be bolder if you knew you were going to live to 84? 
Would you do something different? I think I would. Now, we don't know, do we? We know that all of our days are written in God's book. But if we did know for sure, I think we would live differently. I know I can speak for myself. I think that I would. This is not how I die. Now, our passage today helps us in this regard. In a similar way, it can help us when we get into some spots we don't know how it might work out. And to tell the truth, I'm pretty doggone excited about it to get into it. So let's just jump into it. Where's my clicker? Somebody hid my clicker from me. Romans. Blessings. The results of being right with God. What I want to do as we begin, we're going to read Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14 together. So if you would please stand. We'll read that. We'll pray. And then we'll do a quick review and jump into our passage. And we stand because this is God speaking. If the president walked through the door, we'd probably stand up, right? We should, out of respect. Now stop. You're out of the office. Thank you very much. Uh, let's get political. Uh, so we stand out of reverence because this is the very, these are the very words of God. That's why we stand. Let me read. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sins... Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. By the way, I can never read that again without being affected. Just to know that my body of sin is gone. There's no guilt back there. Sorry. I'm reading it and it's just like, wow. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we, have, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Let me pray. God, you are good. And Your way is surely perfect. Your Word restores the soul. It's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And if we are to cease from sin, if we are to stay away from sin, it will be because we have hidden Your Word in our hearts. God, today, would You plant in rich, fertile soil in our hearts the seed of Your Word, knowing that when You do, the fruit that comes forth is your fruit. 
the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things, there's no law. Holy Spirit, please teach us and open our eyes today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Quick, 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 quick review. We saw in chapter 1-1 through 3-20 that everybody is a sinner. You say, well, I'm not. Yes, you are. I know you are, but what am I? I'm a sinner. I know you are, but what am I? I'm a sinner. <clears throat> you're a sinner. Yeah. Unless you're Donald Trump and you don't have to ask for forgiveness. He's never had to do that. <clears throat> you're going to get me in trouble with the IRS is what you're going to do. Anyway, everybody, everybody, from Adam on, so from the beginning until... The new administration comes in place. God's administration, not the presidential. Everybody is conceived in sin. Everybody. So sin, the need for being right with God. We have to be made right with God. Point two, there's only one way to be made right with God and that is justification by faith. The means for being right with God. We are saved by grace through faith. There is no other way. Faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. No other way. And so now we've been just soaking in point three, and we'll be soaking in it for quite a while longer. Enjoy that. Blessings, the results of being right with God. And again, what a crescendo chapter 8 provides for all these blessings. It is really amazing. So, I want to, before we... Oh, I almost forgot Asian Station. Expiation. God taking the guilt of our sin away from us. Propitiation is Him putting it on Christ and venting the full wrath of His anger upon Christ instead of us. Imputation is Him giving us Christ's righteousness, which leads us to justification, the right to stand in God's presence, which is our salvation and will be our salvation. We talked about starting to talk about sanctification, which is not the process of earning your salvation. It's the process of walking out your salvation. Now, last week and the week before, we've opened the door to talk about sanctification. And truthfully, I hope that you're a little bit frustrated from the last two weeks. Because I keep saying we're going to talk about sanctification, but we haven't really hit it. We've talked about, and if you want to look back at what we've done to this point, specifically the last two weeks, we've talked about, remember, being baptized into Christ. Immersed into Christ. That was the pickle statement in the prayer for those of you that didn't get that. Um, the truth of our union with Christ as believers, as Christians, as born again to a living hope believers, those who have been called, and that's Romans, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. We are one with Christ as believers. Our union with Christ has been a very, very bright spot in all this. In our union with Christ, and this is what we talked about, we have been crucified with Him. Our old man was crucified with Him. His experience in our union with Him became our experience. So when He died, I died. Now, keep that in mind as far as what we talked about. If you knew when you were going to die, would it change the way you lived? Okay? We have been crucified with Him in our union with Him. 
we will be raised with Him. And what we talked about there was the fact that that's not talking about we shared in His resurrection. It's that we will share in a resurrection one day into a new body. And that leads us to walk in newness of life now. Our past is secured. Our future is secured so that we can look at right now and say, past, future, secured. I can walk in newness of life now. That's really big. So that's, that's, again, that's opening the door to talk about sanctification, but we haven't really talked about how do we start to live out what is true. And hopefully, again, we'll get the door further open today. We might even put our foot into the house as we talk about what we're going to talk about today, which is verses 8 through 11. Chapter 6, verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ... We believe that we will also live with Him. So, coming out of the last two weeks, it should be clear that we shared in, we participated in the death of Christ. The major concept that contains this truth is our union with Christ. And that concept is surely major not just in Romans, but in the entire New Testament. Um, anybody, heard of, anybody heard of Sinclair Ferguson? He's a, I think he's Scottish. Uh, and he, I listened to a message of his on Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. And something that he said in that <clears throat> is that if you pricked Paul, if you stuck a needle in him, the message he bled was union with Christ. It's under every sentence, every paragraph, every chapter that Paul wrote is that he talked about being in union with Christ. Paul's favorite phrase to describe a person who had been born again was to say that they were in Christ. I-N is probably the biggest word in the New Testament. In. Believers are literally in Christ. This is what it means to be united with Christ. You are literally in Christ. And here in Romans 6.8, that thought is seen clearly. Paul is saying here, in our union with Christ, we died with Him. And also, we will live with Him. And those two thoughts are connected. In our union, and you're going to hear some repetition through this, but it's so important to understand this. In our union with Him, we died with Him. And also we will live with Him. In our union, if we died with Christ as a result of our union with Him, we believe that we will also live with Him. And I would ask you to please grab a hold of that essential concept that these things are being are, are a result of being in union with Christ. And so, being united with Jesus, our participation in His death leads us to believe, and we'll define that word believe in just a second, that we will also live with Him. Now, there's nothing glamorous. Again, this is foundational to the rest of this text. If we died with Him, we will live with Him. And that's because we are one with Him. We are in Him. Now, about that word believe. The word believe means to have confidence, to have a conviction and trust to which a man is impelled, I-M-P-E-L-L-E-D, not stuck through, 
<clears throat> he is impelled by a certain inner and higher prerogative and law of soul. To believe something literally means to live by. Can you hear it in the word? Believe, live by. It's kind of in reverse there. To believe is to live by. So if we believe that we are in union with Christ, we live by the fact that we are in union with Christ. Believe, live by. So with the truth of our union with Christ in mind, we see that we died with Him and then we live by and in the conviction that we will live with Him. Union with, death with, live with. Now remember I said a couple weeks ago that death precedes life in the kingdom of God. That's pretty big. That's pretty important. You're like, I don't remember you saying that. Well, I'm going to say it again today. Death precedes life in the kingdom of God. You cannot live with Christ if you have not died with Christ. And in our union with Christ, we did die with Christ so that we can live with Christ. Spelled out pretty clearly here. We can't live with Christ unless we die with Him. And we can't die with Him if we're not in union with Him. But we are, so we did, so we can. You got that? We did, so we can. United with Christ, died with Christ, so we can live with Christ. And let's be clear. The will also live with Him here has future tense implications, both in eternity future, but also in the future after our death with Him. When did we die with Him? On the cross... When we were born again, right? So when we were born again, we died with Him on the cross. You're going, no, wait a minute, wait a second, this is Doctor Whoish stuff, right? It's like, where's River Song and all this, right? She's going to show up and tell me that I'm coming to her and she's coming back to me. Sorry, that's fresh for me. I don't like Doctor Who, but I'll play the game. Sorry. Uh, you, you folks that love Doctor Who just shut out the rest of the message. I'm sorry. Anyway. When did we die with Christ? We died with Christ when we were born again. Which happened 2,000 years ago. Which happened for me when I was five years old on my grandma's porch in Cooktown. I was five years old when I died. And I died 2,000 years ago. Yeah. Hold on to that. It gets me excited. <laughs> yes, we will live with Him forever, but we will also be living with Him after the time of our death with Him. So that future tense, we will live with Him, is now and into forever. So it surely has implications in our life now. So with that in mind, are you living with Christ now? Believer. Are you living in Christ now? That's a major theme we will explore in this passage. And to get there, let's look at our next verse, which is verse 9, because I can count. We know that Christ 
being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Now it may seem disconnected from the previous thought, but it's a building block. What is the Holy Spirit saying here through Paul? I think it's pretty straightforward. I told Amanda, my greatest danger in this message, two, two dangers. I could either oversimplify it or I could overcomplicate it. And I hope to hit that right in the middle and not do either. But this verse is pretty straightforward. We established in the last verse that Jesus died, right? Jesus Christ was, a, uh, was in the flesh and He died. From that, Paul references the fact that He was raised from the dead. Since He was resurrected, He will never die again. He overcame death. Jesus' resurrection was the first of its kind. You say, but wait a minute, weren't people brought back from the dead in the Bible before Jesus? Yes, they were. We think about the widow of Zarephath, son that Elijah raised, right? The widow of Nain, whose son Jesus raised. Jairus' daughter. Lazarus. They were all resurrected, right? But they came back to life in their physical body, in a regular body. And you know what happened to all of them? They died again. People say, we only die once. No, these folks died twice. Now, so there were people that came back from the dead before Jesus, but they all died again. Jesus was resurrected by a work of God so that He would never die again. He was raised in a glorified body, whereas they had been brought back from the dead in their same body. Lord, surely by now He stinketh. That's what they said about Lazarus. Jesus was raised in a perfect body that would never taste death again. This verse says that death no longer has dominion over Him. And that word is literally lordship. You say, well, did death ever have dominion over Jesus? Well, sure it did. When He was born in an earthly body, He was born to die. He had come to voluntarily subject Himself to death on our behalf. He submitted to the tyranny of death so He could take our sin to the grave. But when He was reborn, when He was resurrected, He was in a body that would never and could never die again. Now get this, death had no power over. Death has no power over the resurrected Christ. That's what that means. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. So what does that have to do with what we're talking about today? Next verse. For the death He died... He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. Now this is pretty big. For is the first word. What is this, 28th time we've seen this so far? For. Because the death that Jesus died was a death that He died to sin. Now what does that mean? When Jesus was alive... Let me ask you this question. You don't have to answer because it's, it's a hard... It, this is a tricky question. I ask 
my family last night. When Jesus was alive, could he sin? I said, you don't have to answer. That's true. I didn't say you couldn't. You may think, well, yes, he could because he was tempted, right? The answer is no. Jesus could not have sinned. Here's, here's the logic. You ready for the logic? Can God sin? No. Was Jesus God? Yes. So could Jesus sin? You say, but He was in a physical body. Yes, He was, but He was fully God and He was fully man. In His humanity, He could be tempted to sin, but in His Godness, He could not sin. You ever heard of the word impeccable? Jesus Christ was impeccable. doesn't mean that He couldn't be pecked. It means that He couldn't sin. He couldn't be polluted by sin, but He could be tempted by sin. And I, the, the best analogy I've ever heard of that is, who shows their mastery over the dumbbell? The guy that gets it up fully extended or the guy who tries to pick it up and can't? The picture is, if you're trying to pick it up and you can't, that's sin. You fall to the temptation. And you don't bear the full weight of sin because you can't even pick it all up. It beats you. What Jesus did was He picked the barbell up, clean jerk, boom. And He bore the full weight of it and He overcame it. He could not sin, but He could be tempted to sin. And He could be tempted so that He could overcome those sins. So what's all that mean? How does this tie in here? Let me tell you this. When Jesus was alive, He was not able to sin, but He was tempted. The book of Hebrews talks about this in a couple places. I would have sworn that I tricked myself. Aha. Hebrews 2.18 For because He Himself, Jesus, has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What I want to tell you in all that is the fact that Jesus couldn't sin, but He could be tempted so that He could overcome that sin. The death He died, He died to sin. So when Jesus was alive, He suffered temptation, and temptation, listen, in every respect is us. So you can't say, well, Jesus don't know what I'm going through. Jesus does know what you're going through. Every temptation. Now that's a huge statement, by the way. Think about that. It is huge. He suffered temptation in every respect as us, yet without sin. But once He died, listen, there is no power that sin has over Him anymore. Jesus is no longer tempted to sin. That's true of anyone or anything, right? If you die, can you sin? Anybody? Anything? Once you're dead, sin has no power over you, right? Right. Make sense? Sin can't make you sin if you're dead. Dead men sin no sins. Why? Because they're not alive. Sin only affects... Alive people. Alive things. Sounds simplistic, but it's, an, it's a necessary truth. Jesus' death was a death to sin. Once He died, sin could not even tempt Him anymore. 
And his death, how many times did he die? Once. It was a one-time deal. Once for all. Now that makes sense, right? A living, fully human Jesus could be tempted to sin even though he never did sin. But a dead Jesus can neither sin nor be tempted to sin. And then the end of the verse says, but to make a contrast to his death. And what stands in contrast to his death? His life. I bet I don't have that. Let me go back to the verse. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, because he is alive, right? He didn't stay dead. He was resurrected. You're like, this is just simple one plus one stuff. It is. It really is. He died to sin once for all. He was resurrected. And now that he's resurrected, he can't be tempted to sin anymore because he overcame death. He died to sin permanently. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So the contrast is between his death and his life. The death he died, he died to sin. But the life he lives, he lives to God. His life, his resurrected life, is lived not to sin, not even temptation to sin, but his resurrected life is lived to God. When Jesus was resurrected, it was to new life, a life that was completely unaffected by sin and sin's dominion. Dead to sin, alive to God. He died once to live eternally to God. Now, maybe your wheels are spinning. You're going, okay. Blah, 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 blah. So what? Why should I care? What does all this mean? Because union. Union with Christ. My union with Christ. Your union with Christ. Our union with Christ. Verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. The death he died, he died to what? To sin. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay. So now it's time for the what for. We worked for a guy in Tennessee. Every now and then he'd walk up and he'd say, here's a what for. He'd hand you a $20 bill or a $50 bill. And you're like, what's this for? He's like, exactly. Here's the what for in this passage. It's all well and good that Jesus did what He did. It's great that He's doing what He's doing. Yay, Jesus! Really cool. And we're like cheerleaders admiring what He did. But let me tell you, that misses the point of this passage by a mile. I said in the beginning that there are two things that are essential to be armed with if we're going to understand this passage and find it useful in our lives. And I didn't spell it out in 1 and 2, but I'm going to here. The first thing to understand is our union with Christ. Remember I talked about that in the beginning? We have to have that. That has to be clear. We have to understand the concept, the truth of God, establishing the truth of union with Christ. God made a way to bring people 
into literal union with His Son. To literally make people one with Jesus. And that's what the truth of being a Christian is all about. To make people one with Jesus. To be saved, to be born again, is to be one with Jesus. Now, the second thing that I didn't spell out so clearly that I want to spell out clearly here that is essential if we're going to finish this out strong is knowing. Union with Christ is essential and we also have to know that we're united with Christ. As a believer, you are in union with Christ. We can, we can see the principle of being united with Christ, but until we know that we have been united with Christ, it's pointless. You're like, you know, I don't, well, what's the big deal? When you understand that it's you, when you know that you have been united with Christ, that is the second essential. So, one, the truth of union with Jesus, and two, knowing the truth is applicable to your life. We read it in 1 through 14, but I want to reread these verses that show this truth about union and then the necessity of knowing. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. There's our union with Christ. Now verse 6, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So if we're not going to be enslaved to sin, we have to see the possibility of union with Christ and then we have to know that we, our old self, was crucified with Him. And that we, in order that the body of Christ, uh, the body of sin, sorry, might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. If we're going to walk in freedom from sin, we have to see the truth of union with Christ and we have to know that we are included in that. Union with Christ knowing that. So, you see in verse 5, being united with Him, and then in verse 6, us knowing that that union meant that we were crucified with Him. Now, what this does, at this point, like I said earlier, is brings us to the front door. It takes this truth and lays it at our front door. Now, what do we do with it? And verse 11 gives us the answer. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Since we were united with Him, and since we know His experience has been imputed to us, there's imputation, we must do what? And here's, here's the key, okay? Here's, here's... We must consider ourselves to share in His death and in His life. And that word consider is a doozy. Now we've seen this word consider in our trek up the Everest of Romans. And here... Anybody remember this word, logizomai? That first part is all we really need to look at right now. To reckon, to count, compute, calculate, to count over. And then you go to the bottom down to this additional information. 
This word deals with reality. If I logizomai or reckon that my bank book has $25 in it, it has $25 in it. Otherwise, I am deceiving myself. This word refers to facts, not suppositions. I got paid last Friday, not this past one. I could hope that my paycheck was $25,000. And I could write that in my checkbook and I could go out and start living like there was $25,000 in my checkbook. Is that smart? Like before I got my check, I'm like, let's say, pfft, I don't know, 25 grand would be great. Let's just work from that. Then I get my check and it's $312.06. I have misreckoned, haven't I? Uh-oh. Well, I've already spent 12 grand out of my checkbook. Now what am I going to do? Yeah, you're going to go to jail. And you're going to pay all that money back. And your $312.04 is pittance. Now, reckoning. Considering is what it says in the ESV. Consider yourself. This word is used 41 times in the New Testament. And 19 of those times, almost half of them, it's used in Romans. Chapter 4 alone, it was mentioned 13 times. And it was translated count or counted, sometimes as considered. In chapter 4, it was speaking of God crediting Abraham with righteousness. He was reckoned righteous by virtue of what? His faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him or reckoned to him. It was logizomai to him as righteousness. Faith equals righteousness. Faith in God, faith in the finished work of Christ. So what does it mean here? In our passage, to consider ourselves dead to sin, to reckon it into your account, to write it in the checkbook as fact. It means to take our union with Christ, to know it to be true in us and for us, and then to reckon it to our account so that we are using the shared experience with Jesus to live out the truth of our death to sin and our new life to God in Christ Jesus. So that we can say, write it down, when He died, I died. And what did He die to? Three letter word, starts with S, ends with N. It's got an I in the middle. What did He die to? So if He died to sin, did I die to sin? Yes. You're going, okay, but wait a second. I don't feel like I'm dead to sin. We talked about this last week. The objective truth is, He died to sin, and in my union with Him, I died to sin. So how do we get that from up in the air somewhere, up in the cloud, onto my screen? How do I get that into my eyes, into my hands, into my longings? I have to consider myself as dead. I have to reckon But i got a problem with that. How do I reckon? How do I consider? How do you make that happen? When He died, I died. And we now live as He lives. Write it into your ledger sheet and live out the truth of it. Let me offer you a 
illustration about logizomai, which might help us here. Why would God use this word consider? Why would He use the word reckon? Which again, depending on what version you're in. I love this. What does reckoning mean? Reckoning in Greek means do accounts, bookkeeping. <clears throat> Listen, you ready for this? Accounting is the only thing in the world we human beings can do correctly. And you're like, well, I'm not much of an accountant. Listen, an artist paints a landscape. Can he or she do it with perfect accuracy? Can the historian vouch for the absolute accuracy of any record? Or the map maker for the perfect correctness of any map? They can make, at best, fair approximations. Even in everyday speech, when we try to tell some incident with the best intention to be honest and truthful, we cannot speak with complete accuracy. It is mostly a case of exaggeration or understatement of one word too much or too little. What then can a man do that is utterly reliable? Arithmetic. There is no scope for error there. One chair plus one chair equals... Absolutely two chairs. Without equivocation. One plus one equals two. That is true in London and it's true in Cape Town. If you travel west to New York or east to Singapore, it is still the same. All the world over and for all time, one plus one equals two. One plus one is two in heaven and earth and hell. So why does God say we are to reckon ourselves dead? Because we are dead. Let us keep to the analogy of accounting. Suppose I have 15 shillings in my pocket. What do I enter into my account book? Can I enter 14 shillings and 6 pence or 15 shillings and 6 pence? No, I must enter into my account book that which is, in fact, in my pocket. Accounting is the reckoning of facts. It's not fancies. Even so, it is because I am really dead that God tells me to account it so. God could not ask me to put down in my account book what is not true. He could not ask me to reckon that I am dead if I am still alive. For such mental gymnastics, the word reckoning would be inappropriate. We might rather speak of misreckoning. Let me tell you how Kent Hughes puts it. This is from his commentary. The word translated, consider, count yourselves, or reckon, is one of the most important words in Romans. And he reiterate some things I've just said. Paul uses it 19 times in the letter, and if one does not know what it means, he or she will not understand Romans. It is a commercial term which means to impute to one's account. The idea is we are to reflect on our position in Christ. Then we are to set two things to our account. We are dead to sin, and we are alive to God in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say, Have you ever taken the time to consider the fact that you participated in the events of the cross, that you died and that you were resurrected with Christ. If not, he says, why not do it right now? And I love this. He says, this is prevention theology. So much of our time as Christians is spent in corrective theology. What to do when we sin. 1 John 1, 9. Right? If we confess our sins, 
He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's corrective. But wouldn't it be better if we prevented that sin instead of confessing it after we did it? That's what considering does. He goes on to say, This reckoning to our account is something we are to constantly do as the present tense of the verb indicates. And it literally means keep on counting yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And he finishes this statement like this. So far, Paul has told us what we must know about our union with Christ. Then he explains here the necessity of reckoning. Next, he'll tell us how we must act. Which, Sorry, that's next week. Theory must produce action, uses. Now, the how we must act part will be discussed next week. But for now, we need to sit and soak in the call to consider, to reckon, to do the accounting of what has been done for us by Christ and what Christ is doing in and through us now by means of our union with Him. Now, I want to show you what this looks like in another passage of Scripture. And this is a familiar passage of Scripture. Galatians 2.20. Familiar with anybody? I have been crucified with Christ. This is Paul speaking, by the way. The Holy Spirit speaking through Paul, I should say. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Do you see it? Do you see the connection with what we just talked about in Romans? Do you see it? Our union with Christ, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by what? Faith in who? In my ability to be dead? My ability to reckon myself as dead? I live by faith in the Son of God. That that word faith there is the same concept as considering, as reckoning. When you reckon yourself as dead, and when you reckon yourself as alive to God, dead to sin, alive to God, what you're doing is you're living by faith. It's really that simple. God, you said it. I see it. I believe it. Now, I will take the steps to write that into my ledger. It's no longer just in your book. I'm going to write it into the pages of my life. I have been crucified with Christ. Listen, Christian, you have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I, it is no longer you who live. Get a hold of this, church. Christ lives in me. And how do I see that in reality? I do it by faith, by reckoning. I look and I say, okay, I know it. Remember that? I believe it. And since I believe it, I'm going to live according to that. So, it looks like this. 
when sin presents itself to you. How many times have you been there? Countless thousands, literally, probably. You look at sin and you're like, wait just a second. This is not how I live. This is not how I die. Wait just a second. Sin? I know you. And I died when I was five to you. And sin's like, no, you didn't. Yeah, I did. The, the, the Bible tells me that. God says that. It's in my account. I, I wrote it in my account right here. Dead to sin. Five years old, 2,000 years ago. I don't have I don't have to do this. And it whispers, but you want to. It feels good. You've always enjoyed it before, even if you did feel guilty after you did it. And you go, but wait a second. I'm dead to that. Let me tell you what it's not. It's not, I'm dead to that, 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 I'm dead to that. I'm going to try harder to be dead to that. I'm going to bite my lip. Oh, I'm going to die to that. You don't have to die to it. You did die to it. And the death that you died in Christ, you died to sin, so that the life that you live now, you live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Christ is not tempted by that sin. I'm not tempted by that sin. I don't want that. I want righteousness. I want holiness. I want to live to God, and I live to God in Christ as He lives in me because I'm united with Him. I died to that when I was five years old. I died to that 2,000 years ago, and I was resurrected to a new hope as I was placed in Christ in union with Him. I'm not tempted by that. There is something better. There is something greater that I want, and it is Christ Himself. It's holiness and righteousness and pleasing to God. The life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. And the life I now live, I live to God because it's Christ that's alive in me. It's one plus one equals two. And you look in the midst of the temptation, Not this is not how I die, this is not how I live. I don't, I don't live that way because I'm one with Christ and Christ does not live that way. Christ died to sin. I'm dead to that. I am I am dead to that. I died. And you want to run around the neighborhood and say, Hey, I died. I'm dead. And they're going, What is wrong with this guy? And you say, Because I've already died. Can you look at sin and say, Wait a minute, this is not how I live. This is not how Christ lives. Yes, you can. Because the objective truth is you died with Him to sin. And the life that you now live, you live to God in Christ who lives in you as you live your life by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave Himself up for you. Now, let's piece it all together, finish up with application. What's it look like? What's the mathematical equation? Right here. You have to know it. You're not ignorant now. 
You do have to believe it. God, you said it. I do believe it. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can believe it. Once we believe it, we reckon it into our account. We write it in the ledger. Just like I wrote my paycheck into my checkbook. It's there. And that's the truth that I live according to. And that leads to doing, which, sorry, again, that's next week. What does doing look like? We'll see that next week. But what I want you to hear this morning, what I want you to see as clearly as you can see it is, it is simple math. The guy in Big Fish, this is not how I die. He knew it. So it removed the fear from the situation and he went on. And then when he reached the point of his death, I won't give it away for you, He's like, yeah, that's it. This is how I die. So what we can do is look sin in the eye and say, because I died with Christ when I was born again, this is not how I live. And you're not trying to convince yourself. It's the truth. Plain, simple truth. One plus one plus one plus one equals four every time. And that objective truth starts to become a subjective reality when you start to do the math. And you say, this is not how I live anymore. Know it. Believe it. Reckon it. You will do it. It's really not that complicated. What I want to do as we close... I want to read that passage again, 8 through, 8 through 11. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is not how I live. Let's pray. God, again, I celebrate the truth of my death. And I celebrate the truth that the death that I died in Christ, I died to sin once for all. And the life that I live now, by faith in the Son of God, I live to God. I live to You. You have given me the very righteousness of Christ as a gift that I have received by faith. Now God, what I ask for me, what I ask for us, is that You would give hands and feet to that faith, that belief, that we would reckon into our accounts the truth and live accordingly. That we would begin to do what we know, what we believe, and what we have reckoned into our accounts. Your Word is perfect. It restores our souls. So the next time that sin comes knocking, I'm sure it will be before we walk out these doors today, God. May we stand and say, that's not how I live. I am dead to that. Will we perfectly execute that plan, God? Nope, we will not. We will fail to write the proper checks at time. 
We will fail to reckon properly into our account what you've done for us. We will fall. We will stumble. We will sin. We are still hidden with Christ in God. Gifted the perfection of Christ. All of our sins, all the body of sin, done away with. God, I pray that you would prepare our hearts and our minds for next week so that we might see how we do this. What it looks like once we've reckoned. What we are to do once we've reckoned that into our accounts. Give us the wisdom that we need so that we might do the things that you've called us to do, so that we might live to you, God. Of course we need your help, and you've given us your Holy Spirit, your very life, so that we might live out exactly what you've called us to do. We ask for your help, in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.